Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional under the umbrella of Hard Water One. I'm Dr. Brianne Schumann-Brown, and I'm joined today by Nick Rolnick, physical therapist and founder of Human Performance Mechanic. He has also recently joined on with Smart Tools as a clinical instructor teaching evidence-based blood flow restriction therapy. We dive into everything a blood flow restriction therapy related, talking about what it is, why it's utilized, and why it is so beneficial for both athletes and non-athletes alike. I think once you listen to Nick talk, you will truly see the passion that he has in blood flow restriction therapy. Nick, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to what we're going to discuss. Awesome. Awesome. Well, first of all, let's just, let's just get definition-wise. What is blood flow restriction therapy, and why is it utilized? Yeah, so blood flow restriction, aside from having probably the most alarming name possible, blood flow restriction, um, is the definition is use of a medical cuff, really, at least in the rehab setting, use of a medical class one cuff to restrict, to fully restrict venous return, so the blood coming back from the working muscles, and to partially restrict to varying degrees arterial flow. And what that does is it creates an artificially high intensity environment for the muscles to work in. So predominantly speaking, it's like tricking your muscle to thinking that you're lifting a lot heavier weights than you actually are. So typically the recommendations for muscle mass and strength gains are above 60% of the one rep max, uh, according to ACSM, NASM, and uh, the NSCA, for example, um, common uh, groups that, you know, that have certifications for personal training and performance. And so typically with injury, we're not able to train at that level of intensity, or if we have um, conditions that might be contraindicated, such as your you know, geriatric client who might be at risk for falls or somebody that has uh, bone problems or fractures, et cetera. And so what this technology allows you to do is create muscle mass and strength gains among many other things, but typically at least what we think about in the performance realm and in the early rehab realm is making sure that we're improving our muscle mass and strength and during periods of deloading, which would be periods of time where we A, are not loading our muscles or our body as much as we could, but B, also to try, kind of uh, prevent that atrophy because with bed rest, we're going to get uh, even up to two weeks, you might be able to get, you might be able, you're probably going to experience loss of muscle mass about the size of a human heart, which is about 350 grams of muscle tissue. And if you're ever an athlete or somebody who bodybuilds um, that tries to reach high levels of performance, it's very easy to lose <laughs> lose some you know the, the muscle. It's harder to actually get it. So it's really important during those periods of time where you're injured to help uh, to help stave off some of that that atrophy and maintain your your ability to perform at high levels. And BFR can allow you to do that. So when you're saying you can utilize it at, with bed rest as well, this is also something that can be utilized in a non-weight-bearing status. So if someone has a fracture, can't put weight on their leg, it's something that they can utilize to still strengthen that leg, correct? Yeah, so I've, I've kind of classified the different applications of blood flow restriction into what I call pillars. So if you think about a house and you think about the, the foundational aspects of a house, if the roof would be quote unquote blood flow restriction in general, meaning that it's something you're, you're restricting blood flow to some degree, then the four different pillars are going to be different applications within blood flow restriction that you can utilize. So number one, or what I call pillar one is the traditional low load resistance training that has been popularized in the research, at least in the early, you know, the early aspects of research showing that um, with low loads as such as low as 20 to 30% of the one rep max, and honestly, even lower, uh, typically with multi joint exercises, I, I don't even have people 
load just because it's so challenging. But typically the low load resistance exercises are done um, in a rep scheme of 30 repetitions followed by three sets of 15 with 30 seconds of rest in between at occlusion pressures. So say we measure the arterial occlusion. So the amount, the cuff that you're going to be wearing would, um, would you'd be able to either measure it internally, which would be something like the Delphi unit, uh, which is the most expensive unit, but also a very good unit. I have one myself uh, and use it in clinical practice frequently. And uh, that would actually determine how much pressure it takes to fully occlude the brachial artery, which is the artery in the arm, or the femoral artery, which is the artery in the leg. And then you would work out at a percentage of that. So with arterial, with, uh, with the arms, you would use at about, about 40 to 50% of the limb occlusive pressure. So if your limb occlusive pressure is 100 millimeters of mercury, that's the pressure that, that, the, band, that the cuff is going to be exerting on your arm, much like taking a your blood pressure, you feel the pressure of the device on your arm. Well, you can imagine exercising at a percentage of that, that would, would be in, in essence, blood flow restriction. And then the legs, we're, we're, our goal is to operate, is to exercise at an intensity of anywhere between 60 to 80%, more toward 80% if we're acclimating. And then um, the 30, 15, 15, 15 is done so we can actually exhaust some of the fuel of the muscle and then really work toward um, toward the anaerobic or the, the lack of oxygen if will stimulate the type 2 motor fibers which are the ones or muscle fibers which are the ones that have a tendency to atrophy really quick with bed rest or, or non-stimulation so that's typically what I call pillar one um, and then pillar two is the low intensity cardiovascular exercise and low intensity cardiovascular exercise is done typically with recommendations, right? When you're exercising, you'd want to stimulate the adaptation with greater than 60% of your, your VO2 max or your heart rate reserve and your heart rate reserve typically is calculated by two, by the Carbonin formula, uh, 220 minus your age, minus your resting heart rate. And then you multiply that by whatever percentage that you're intending to work out at if you're resting heart, heart, or heart rate reserve. And then you add back in your resting heart rate. And that will, that's what would be your heart rate reserve and the operating uh, levels of which you train for exercise. So typically with BFR, though, um, you, you, don't need to, you don't actually need to work out at a very high percentage, which is very conducive for a lot of people particularly the geriatric clients uh, or somebody that really can't exercise at a high intensity for whatever reason. And so typically you'd exercise as little as two minutes and you can do this in blocks. And they've shown this actually in, uh, in collegiate basketball players or even high level military athletes, just having them walk on a treadmill can improve their aerobic capacity or their VO2 max. Now we can talk about what the mechanisms are there, uh, but basically it's just you're increasing local local oxidative stress. Oxidative stress meaning that when we contract our muscles, we don't have enough oxygen in the environment, and that forces uh, cellular adaptations to happen. So that's really promising because that can be done in the rehab setting. So typically one and two are done in the rehab setting, and then there's pillars three and four which are more for performance and pillars three, pillar three is high intensity interval training. So now you could take your, your, your cardiovascular exercise that you're doing as a healthy adult, or if somebody that you're, you're about to get discharged from, from rehab and you're more segueing toward performance, you now can take advantage of pillar three, which is uh, pairing up what we would call localized adaptation, which is what happens in, pillar two with a cardiovascular exercise because you're really not stimulating the cardiovascular system to a significant degree if you're working with 45% of your heart rate reserve, which is what would be you'd be working at on pillar two. You then get systemic um, benefits by um, challenging your heart rate and also muscular adaptations because now you're, you're requiring muscles to fire very very frequently and at a high level because now you're going to be adding resistance to that. And typically pillar three is, is performed by doing um, 20 to 30 second all out spurts, but you're not doing BFR in this period of time. You're trying to maximize the volume workload of that exercise. And then right afterward, what you, what you could do, 
because there's a couple of different ways you can take advantage of high intensity. But typically, what I do in clinic when I have people that want to do this are then I put BF, then BFR cuffs get inflated right after exercise. So you've just created a lot of um, metabolite buildup. So you've created a lot of lactate. You've created a lot of oxidative stress to that environment, and you're not allowing it to escape. So you're not allowing it to escape for two minutes typically, and then the last two minutes, so it's a four-minute total rest period, the last two minutes you would then allow the free-flowing blood to kind of recover a little bit, and then you'd stress that again from four to, four to seven times. And they've really had some good benefits. Uh, the Taylor study, 2016, was looking at cyclists, and they did this and improved their VO2 max 4.5%. These are trained cyclists uh, as well. Um, so they're really, really, really cool applications for harnessing not only uh, hypoxia in general, but then adding on to it a high intensity exercise. And that's pillar three. And then pillar four is like a lot of the passive stuff, um, which is ischemic pre and post conditioning. And that's typical for performance along with self swelling, which would be something that you could do in early rehab. But for performance setting, ischemic preconditioning pretty much is just creating a controlled injury to your muscle cells and that controlled injury then can help upregulate some of those cellular defenses to prevent against muscle damage. So say I have somebody that wants to go um, in, into a heavy workout and, or needs to work out more frequently for whatever reason. Like for instance, say you're doing a in the CrossFit Games or you're training multiple times a day. You can use ischemic preconditioning to help with uh, mitigating muscle damage, which could then help you potentially train more frequently. And then ischemic post-conditioning is just exactly what you think. You do a similar protocol of ischemic preconditioning, which I really didn't talk about the protocol yet. Um, but then you do that four to five hours after your exercise bout. And what that's doing is kind of trying to create the, trying to take those fluids that might be outside of the muscle cell and trying to create a gradient so that they actually flow back into the muscle cell. And with the goal being that you can restore your maximum voluntary contraction or AKA um, your force that your muscles can generate quicker. And so then you could train potentially more frequently. So that's kind of where, um, where pillar four is. And then the other end of the spectrum is early rehab with self swelling. So typically self swelling, I think of with BFR as just being able to pump up that muscle cell. And when you pump up that muscle cell, you're, you're stimulating receptors that are, that lie on the muscle cell membrane. We can use blood flow restriction to help um, offset some of the atrophy there. And there, there are studies that have been done, like Takarada in 2000 did this on ACLs three days post-op and showed that there, that he could reduce atrophy uh, compared to doing nothing. Again, that's a, that's, it was a pilot study, but compared to doing nothing, which we don't do in rehab anyways, you actually saved about 10% of atrophy compared to uh, when, when we use BFR versus not. And there's a couple other studies that were done um, that, that really with higher levels of pressure, we can actually offset some atrophy. And that's kind of typically done uh, either in the people that can't contract their muscles at all, or in the early period where I'm trying to introduce BFR and trying to get them comfortable with the stimulus of what compression feels like, and then how that can kind of help with, um, with kind of, again, stimulating your body to adapt. So those are the kind of four different pillars that you can operate BFR under. And then lastly, we talk about your foundation is only as good as your building blocks. And what are the building blocks? Well, they're a good nutritional intake. So having a high levels of protein intake, uh, specifically those with leucine um, to, help off, to help increase net protein synthesis and keep it positive, especially during periods of immobilization uh, and non-weight bearing are going to be critical to help creating that strong foundation. So that's where nutrition comes in in all different, all the four pillars. Okay, that's awesome. So it's a lot of information, I know. Um, so we can, however you wanted to, to, to dig in. Um, yeah, certainly. Starting from, let's go rehab setting first. So just thinking, you have someone comes to you, recent acute injury or recent surgery. How soon are you starting the BFR and how often are you doing it, like per week? Um, so really with post-surgical, the way that it is right now, um, I would just advise everybody listening to get clearance from the surgeon 
for two reasons. Number one, it provides an easy entryway into discussion with a referring provider, which could then generate more business for you in the future. Number two, a lot of surgeons aren't aware of blood flow restriction at all. And so if you have a client that you're seeing and then they come back to their surgeon and even though they're successful with the intervention and they're saying that their, their physical therapist, their rehab provider, chiropractor, athletic trainer, whatever, is doing blood flow restriction with them and then the surgeon was never brought on board, you're just going to save yourself from a potential uh, headache. Not, not saying that BFR is ever something that I'd be worried about. It's just an easy way to open up communications. I'll give you an example. I went to a uh, last week I had a meeting with a big time surgeon in New York city and he had no idea what blood flow restriction was at all. So he was on board after our discussion about what the benefits are, but he really wasn't on board. And it's just, it, it really is just, again, with blood flow restriction, the name, you know, his first question was, why, why would you ever do blood flow restriction when I do this in surgery? I restrict blood flow for a long period of time, and that causes damage. So I had to explain to him that just like anything in the human body, right, if we, our body can adapt to a stimulus if given the appropriate, you know, the appropriate uh, tools. And so with controlled bouts of ischemia or a lack of oxygen, that actually is a tremendous stimulator for adaptation. It's not just muscle mass and strength. Hypoxia has a role in bone growth and bone healing. Um, so with, with, with fractures, for example, somebody that's non-weight bearing you're talking about in your example, um, VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, is stimulated by something, um, by, by a lack of oxygen in the environment. So you have this, bio, you have this um, signaling molecule uh, that will get picked up, will pick up, you know, that's stimulated with lack of oxygen. That signaling molecule will then signal to VEGF. VEGF is important in stimulating uh, the bone cells, the osteoblast, to lay down bone. It's also important in stimulating capillarization. So being able to um, lay down new capillary beds to be able to deliver nutrients to an area is really, really, really important. Not to mention that we can have a uh, we can have a stimulation of what's called uh, these the muscle metaboreflex, which pretty much just picks up changes in acidity in the local muscle environment. And that change in acidity will then signal growth hormone release from the anterior pituitary. Now, growth hormone is super, super, super important for collagen synthesis, and it also signals to the liver. So the liver will pick up growth hormone levels, which are typically elevated only following heavy intensity resistance training. It pretty much signals to the body, I need to repair, I need to repair. We can stimulate growth hormone, adaptate, uh, growth hormone release with low, low BFR due to the fact that we're stimulating that muscle metaboreflex. That muscle metaboreflex gets stimulated, we get release of all these really important um, signaling molecules that, that are, are all about repair and growth. So really, 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 really critical that you can, that, that's why a lot of the times when I, when I talk about blood flow restriction to uh, other clinicians, it's really important to understand the physiology because if you understand the physiology underneath the application uh, that you're going to be giving to the client, it's a pretty easy sell. It really is. It's, what's not an easy sell is trying to convince, uh, <laughs> convince a surgeon that, that restriction of blood flow is bad if you don't understand why the hypoxia will upregulate adaptation. And that even transcends to the performance realm because in those, in those situations, we actually want to maximize the hypoxic stimulus because that's going to stress the mitochondria. And the mitochondria is the, it, it, we want to upregulate function of the mitochondria for performance because if we're, if we're operating at a, at, a, at a very high level and we're creating a lot of lactate, the re, the, our lactate clearance, so our ability to get rid of that lactate and use it as fuel, because that's really what lactate is. It's actually fuel for our heart. It's actually the preferred fuel source for our heart, lactate, believe it or not. Um, <clears throat> the liver uses it to create glucose, and so does the kidneys. So, so we can improve our lactate clearance. It actually can benefit so many different functions in our body, and specifically with with VO2 max, 
if our mitochondria become more efficient at utilizing lactate, they've actually shown that that during submaximal prolonged exercise, that we actually, in those that undergo ischemic preconditioning, that there's actually a, a less release of lactate. Why? Because now our mitochondria have been conditioned to use oxygen more efficiently. So now there's there's less need to be able to generate that uh, the lactate from anaerobic glycolysis, which is what would happen if our, our mitochondria can't clear that lactate efficiently. And it clears the lactate efficiently by going through um, the, the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And then, so yeah, so it's just... It's just a lot of, of, of reason why understanding the physiology and why I spend a lot of time myself trying to understand the physiology is because now it, it just makes a lot of sense. It's just being able to communicate that effectively. Mm-hmm. So typically, like I with how soon would I getting now circling back to that initial <laughs> question, right? After a long, verbose uh, response is number one, I would always ask the surgeon, if you're getting referred, and this I tell all the clinicians in the courses, if you ever have a referral source, I would always, that, that, um, that you're planning on doing BFR with, always reach out to them. That provides an avenue for contact, but also shows you're an expert in whatever therapy that you're gonna be applying. Um, if, it's, if it's not from a referral source, um, then typically I will do that day zero, if I find it, uh, day one, if I find it appropriate. Um, like I get a lot of my business from uh, personal referrals. Um, so I don't really deal with a lot of physicians directly. Um, but it's about communicating the benefits. Um, so if you understand the benefits day zero, and I would start with a cell swelling protocol, maybe one or two exercises and then go from there and, and see what their, their response to the, to the exercise is. Okay. Talking kind of, when talking response or even contraindications, like what are some things negative? Are there any negative responses that could happen? If so, what are those? And like, what are some contraindications to applying it to someone in the clinic? Mm-hmm. So just like anything, right? Even exercise has contraindications in certain people. So we have to, we have to understand that. Number two, that BFR actually, if you think about what, if you understand the physiology, and it's very easy to understand what contraindications would be for BFR. So, for instance, the, to, to simplify it to the listener again, the whole mechanisms that are underlying BFR is to maximize the lack of oxygen in the local muscular environment. When you maximize the lack of oxygen in the local muscular environment and you do that under a controlled manner, with something like a smart cuff, for example, that's very affordable, um, that does what it's supposed to do, then you're going to be able to understand, uh, you're going to be able to elicit adaptations and understand when you shouldn't do that. So for instance, um, if you have cardiovascular disease, peripheral, peripheral disease that is impacting your circulatory system, or your cardiovascular system, for example, like if you have peripheral arterial disease where you're already getting natural ischemia, lack of oxygen in that environment already, adding the, the tissues are already oxygen starved chronically, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually <laughs> administer BFR on any of those people either. Um, hypertensive individuals, particularly those that have that are stage two or greater. So typically 160 over 100 or greater, I would not do BFR simply because uh, those individuals have, have, have been known to exhibit an altered muscle metabolic reflex. So we talked about the muscle metabolic reflex briefly showing that that actually stimulates growth hormone, which is a good thing. However, what the muscle metabolic reflex also does is it stimulates to the heart to increase contractility and it also stimulates to the respiratory centers to increase ventilation. So if we're having an individual that has uncontrolled hypertension, stage two, stage three, or even stage one, really, um, but stage one to a lesser degree, we're expecting that they're gonna have an altered hypertension, they're gonna have an altered response to exercise. And that's just not even with BFR, that's just in general. Um, because those individuals actually, and this is why it's always really important to take blood pressure pre and post of you're doing somebody that has a known blood pressure response is because they actually, their arteries in and of itself aren't responsive to sympathetic innervation. 
So you get a situation where it actually becomes a feed forward mechanism, which is why their blood pressure raises so much during exercise. So typically with sympathetic innervation, we're going to get with during exercise, we're going to get blood that gets shunted away from the skin and then goes to the active exercising skeletal muscle. The problem is, is that with hypertensive individuals, normally the sympathetic innervation to the active muscles actually vasodilates the muscle. That allows for increased nutrients, increased oxygen to get to the muscle and everything. With hypertensive people, that stays shut. So now you get a feed forward mechanism of, all right, the, 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 these receptors now are continually active and they push, push, push more blood. And that's when you get the, the, the inherently higher blood pressure with exercise. So I, I tend to really be careful with those people, with hypertensive people individual, uh, by themselves, just because of that response that gets, that gets exaggerated. Um, also, uh, people with like sickle cell anemia, they're already having trouble with their oxygen transport. Um, no good. Any active cancer, um, any active cancer distal to the site um, for other reasons. I don't want to just continue, but pretty much just, just, and no active cancer. Um, uh, any, like any neuropathies that you can't really sense or you can't really tell. Um, so typically when you apply the cuff, you should, especially to the arm, there might be a little bit of, um, feeling like you have a little tingling, um, typically because the ulnar nerve is more superficial um, in the arm. And so typically like you can get some responses here uh, on the fourth and fifth digit, which is completely normal. But when you start to get five finger, like I had a client last week who, um, even though we were on the, the lower pressure, had five finger numbness after I did BFR. And so if you couldn't tell that, then that's, that's telling that nerve that there's, there's some pressure that shouldn't be there. After we adjusted it, he had no problem. Um, so any sort of serious numbness, tingling. Um, so you need to be able to actually you know, have under, be able to understand that. And um, tumors, distal to the site, open wounds, distal to the site. I mean, some of, the, some of this up, honestly, once you get past like the, hyperten the, the higher levels of hypertension, um, and, and, and other things that you would think, all right, does this, does this, does this condition potentially create a situation where I, I'm already getting natural um, ischemia or a lack of oxygen? If so, BFR is no good. Or I can't feel my arm or my leg distal <laughs> to that. That's probably not going to be a good, a good thing there. Also, the one thing I will say is, is, is excess varicose veins. So varicose veins are like spi or spider veins, for example. And they're just showing that the venous network is not super compliant and it's more, more brittle than, or at least more fragile than, than, it, than you know, normal. And so you can imagine that if you're clamping down on that venous network with, or, and stressing that venous network because you're not allowing the blood flow to return back, that once you actually open up and allow that blood flow to come back, you're now going to be stressing that, that venous network a little bit more. So I wouldn't necessarily do it with somebody that has a ton of spider veins. That's kind of a on a continuum, and also weighing risk versus reward. Like it's, this is a this would be something that would be super beneficial to the client. Again, it, it, there there's some gray areas in that in that regard, but um, but yeah, those are kind of like some of the contraindications. And then there's there's risks, or I mean, uh, precautions. So things like stage one hypertension would be a precaution. Um, stage one or Again, not as many superficial varicose veins and a couple other things. I mean, we go through a lot of this in the course because it's really important to understand um, when you should do BFR, which is amazing, uh, but also when you shouldn't do BFR, mm -hmm. which is also very important. Yeah. How about if uh, someone has a history of DVTs? Yes, that's complete. So that's an easy one that I completely uh, just didn't talk about, which is, yeah, DVTs. So I had to, I, I actually excluded one of my clients on that basis alone. So she, she was one of the perfect clientele for BFR. So she's 75, but she had a, she had a DVT like 38 years ago. And even just the history of, of a clot 38 years ago, if you, there's no evidence to suggest that BFR actually elevates clotting risk. It actually, there's actually evidence to suggest the contrary, that it actually increases the, um, the fibrolinic potential, which is just the ability of our blood to, to not clot, 
it actually may, it actually improves that to a similar degree as high intensity resistance training, which is great. Um, but with that being said, those individuals that might be um, on anti-clotting medicine or those that have a clot in the past, I would not do BFR with. Yeah, that's what I kind of assumed. When talking about athletes, uh, going to workouts, the workout side of things first, how often do you suggest athletes use BFR during their training versus just training without it? Uh, I'm going to give you the old physical therapy answer, which is it depends. (laughs) Um, It really does. I mean, typically the research shows that uh, with low intensity resistance training, there's not a benefit. There's no more benefits conferred after three times a week. Typically, the vast majority of benefits are conferred twice a week. So, in my own model, I have people come in twice a week if they're doing BFR. Um, three times a week if they're really, really, really want to. But with the cell swelling protocols, for example, um, there more times are better. Um, that's kind of where the missing gap is in research and practice, actually, um, because typically cell swelling, you want to do it twice a day, um, which is impractical in the, pra- in, in the clinic setting right now, but super now practical with, with availability of the smart cup, for example, uh, where people are, we're, we're looking into being able to rent cuffs for two to three weeks. Um, so people can actually do that themselves and really gain a benefit. Um, so when they come to therapy, it's not just, oh, we're putting on a soft swallowing protocol. It's, oh, we're going to come and progress and do other things, uh, et cetera. Um, with, uh, with athletes, again, it, it, just, it really just depends where they are in their training block, what their goals are. Um, typically, like with, with low-intensity cardiovascular exercise, five to six times a week, should be a targeted target goal because um, you're only walking 15 minutes tops. You have cuffs on both legs. You're at a high occlusive pressure of that 80%. And uh, it's really not that demanding, um, but you need to, you need frequency for that to actually um, have a significant benefit. Uh, and then uh, with ischemic preconditioning, without getting too deep into the, the, the physiology, there's, there's actually two different windows of protection. Um, there's the early and late and early phase protection is like the localized protection to, um, to like muscle damage. And that can do, I would do that honestly, um, before a big competition, but then there's also late protection, which is more of a cardiovascular, uh, protection that happens to a lesser degree than the initial, like the initial early protection. Um, but that, you know, typically, three times a week for ischemic preconditioning is probably okay. But if you have a, a, a big time show or um, competition, then you, you're probably maybe will get an additional benefit by doing it multiple times throughout that, that time. We haven't really, I, I'm not aware of any research that kind of discriminates between high frequency IPC and um, just, moderate, which, which would be, um, you know, more than four or five times a week versus low. Um, but I think that at bare minimum, three times a week for ischemic preconditioning throughout a heavy training block would be, would be optimal. Um, so it really just depends. It really depends. And that's part of the reason why, you know, a shameless plug here for the BFR pros, um, but the BFR pros is a, is a company that myself, Mario Novo and Jordan Ascanio, um, so lifters clinic on Instagram and BFR training on Instagram. Uh, we have all come together cause we've all used BFR in various patient and athletic po- uh, populations. And so we've become, we we're we're definitely experts in programming and where BFR should fit. And that's kind of what our main offering is, is kind of filling in that gap. Whereas yes, we know the research is there. The science is there. It's still evolving mind you, but how, how you want BFR in your programming to optimize and accelerate your performance, which is, you know, our motto is accelerate human performance, then you need to know how to program it appropriately. So that's kind of what we're doing. That's what we offer as a service um, to people, along with selling the, the smart cuffs as well, um, where you can get them off our website. So it's, it's, it's really, really, really cool stuff, but really it does. It depends. <laughs> it really <Yeah>. does. <laughs> no, I totally get that. 
when talking about the recovery side of things, so the post conditioning, are we are you talking as far as like it helps with overall muscle recovery, regeneration of force? We're talking cardiac recovery. We're kind of talking everything recovers faster. So really, really, really cool and fascinating research um, has been done on ischemic post conditioning. Um, so typically, where the research is at right now, for the most part, is looking at the benefits of ischemic post-conditioning on heart health and reducing, uh, reducing infarct or, 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 or blood clot size. So they've actually, they've actually shown that even if you have like a heart attack, for example, and you do ischemic post-conditioning after, which literally seems like crazy that you would actually induce some bouts of, of ischemia somewhere. Um, they typically do this like a forearm. They would just cleanse their arm and they do something called physiologic um, occlusion, which is just you're, you're creating the ischemic, uh, in, ischemia in the muscles by not using a cuff per se, but just squeezing your forearm muscles as hard as you can for a minute. Uh, and then they repeat that a couple of times. They've actually shown that that actually helps with heart recovery, uh, brain recovery following stroke, and so with athletes, the, 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 there's not much out on post-schema conditioning. There is some, some evidence to suggest that it does help with return and normalizing of muscle force a little bit quicker um, than, than other recovery uh, you know, methods would, would have you believe. Believe it or not, there's not a lot of evidence suggesting that recovery science in and of itself is even beneficial. I mean, we like to think that it, it is. Um, by using, uh, by, if you just check the market and just see a million different recovery things that are out there, um, a lot of this stuff might even be placebo. Um, so who, who knows? Um, but yeah, but with the, with the ischemic post conditioning, what you're trying to just do is, is, is again, create, use that ischemic stimulus, but also over to try and drive that fluid that's outside of that muscle back in because it kind of will escape and it'll create a different gradient. And then that will help with normalizing uh, force. Cause you're also going to get changes in the ions and how they're going to be transmitted across the membranes, uh, membrane of the cell. And that kind of can help normalize and equilibrate that. Again, some of this stuff is hypothetical. Um, some of this stuff is research-based. We're, we're kind of, we're kind of now moving further than the research, um, which is a good thing, but it's also, I want to make sure that everything is kind of, you know, evidence, at least at the bare minimum, evidence-informed practice, uh, which is what the kind of the programming is uh, to, to a certain extent, uh, and not extrapolate further than what the research really says. But um, there is definitely evidence to show that there is the MVC or maximum voluntary contraction, which is a measure of fatigability, but also recovery, normalizes uh, quicker uh, if, we, if we can do BFR. Now, interesting thing and, and a caveat to know about post-ischemic conditioning is that you actually don't want to do that immediately after heavy lifting. Why? Because, and this is where I'm, I'm kind of confused at stuff like the Normatec boots and the compression therapies that are out there is because you want additional blood flow following exercise. You want, you want the blood to be able to access the muscles because you want the blood to bring in, you know, after exercise and after you create muscle damage, there's inflammation that naturally happens, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a natural process that happens. And so you want additional blood flow to come to the cell. You want that to then signal repair. So if you're compressing, if you're compressing immediately after, now granted, I think that, that they, they say they're only compressing venous and, and lymphatic and trying to put, you know, push that up. But even then, for me, I, I don't necessarily know if that's, that's going to be any more benefit other than placebo, just because it feels good. And it does. It feels good. Like, I mean, I, I have access to Normatec boots. I'm not going to lie. They feel good. <laughs> um, but which is, but which is part, again, part placebo. A lot of this stuff when we get to higher level athletics is placebo, you know, some taping, you know, some things that just make you feel different that you're like, oh man, this might work. But in terms of the actual compression afterward, you know, Lenicky, Lenicky's lab publishes a lot of research on the methodological um, practices of BFR, but also some cool stuff about showing that really like they did, they did uh, heavy lifting 
and they did BFR immediately after. And all they did was just occlude. And they actually showed that it had no difference. And even in women, it showed that they might actually attenuate, meaning that it reduces muscle, ma muscle mass gains, which is not a good thing. You don't want that. There's, so there's actually some, some sexual dimorphism differences between men and women, which is fascinating, which is still like another area of research in and of themselves, like how men and women kind of respond and their adaptations to exercise in general. Just, it, it, it's crazy, but at least in their, their, at least in BFR following that kind of exercise, uh, heavy lifting, it's, it might not be appropriate, but giving a four to five hour period of time where, you know, you allow the additional blood flow to come into the muscle and then do something like post conditioning uh, would be beneficial. And I know we didn't talk about the protocol for ischemic pre or post. They're pretty much the same. And what it is, is you're doing four to five rounds of 100% arterial occlusion. So if you're 100 millimeters of mercury, you're, you're setting it at 100. And you're doing that for five minute bouts, four times with three to five minute rest in between. So it's a longer period of time, right? It takes about 30 minutes to be able to do. But, um, but at least that, 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 that's generating that kind of controlled uh, reaction in your cells that kind of helps signal adaptation. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's kind of where we're at with, with that in terms of recovery. Okay. It'll be interesting to see once more research comes out. Um, just thinking as far as CrossFit world goes, competitions, you know, there's normally, whether you're a local competition and doing three or four events, if not more in a day, or games level, where you have multiple events over multiple days, it'll be interesting to see more research coming out on utilization of it, you know, in between events or end of day and, and all mm -hmm. that. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if this is privileged information or not, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so the BFR pros, we're going to be getting into CrossFit. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking with a couple of camps that are very big in the CrossFit world and are huge fans of the potential for ischemic pre and post conditioning. Um, they're, they, they've had very good responses from their athletes um, at the games. And, um, and so really, again, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a skeptic as well. So, you know, I'm presenting the information about BFR, but I'm also, you know, an academic in that, you know, I do want to study this on an academic level and get my PhD, uh, in exercise physiology. So like I, I'm at this point, I'm just presenting information. I, yes, I have an interest in terms of, you know, uh, spreading of BFR, but, I, but the science is there. The science is sound which is great. So it's like, I, when I go give these presentations, I'm just presenting evidence. I'm not presenting a slant. Like IASTM is a lot of slanting about how it may or may not benefit you. This is just, I'm presenting the evidence mm -hmm. and I'm familiar with it and, and it works. There is evidence to suggest that ischemic preconditioning uh, might not benefit maximal effort exercise. So for example, if you're a, an Olympic weightlifter, and you want to, you know, uh, uh, clean and jerk your one rep max better or prevent against muscle damage or augment your performance in some capacity. Ischemic preconditioning is probably not going to be the answer for you. But if you're somebody that needs to do something for 20, 30, 40 minutes at a, at a moderately sustainable level, there is evidence to suggest that ischemic preconditioning like again in the games in situations where you're doing crossfit type activities where you need to where you need to keep a certain level of activity for a prolonged period of time there is very positive evidence that that really is saying that if you as long as you're maintaining your power output between a certain level that 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 you're not going too high into anaerobic levels so again that, that quick clean and jerk or that snatch or, or, or whatever that, that you can actually benefit significantly from this protocol. So now it's about what kinds, you know, cause, cause there have been, there have been studies that have shown that even in a hundred meter sprint, which is a, a sprint, a swimming sprint that, that they've actually improved their swim times by 0.7 seconds in national level swimmers. That's a big, big, 
big time difference. Now, that's just one positive study. There are other studies that don't really show that. Again, we're looking at how do we maximize the protocols. But in order to stay on the cutting edge of performance, um, I definitely think this is a huge, huge, huge um, and efficacious way that we can promote better performance. And to be honest, it may even be illegal in 10 years. Um, so they've looked at rabbits and they've done ischemic preconditioning on rabbits. And, they, and ischemic preconditioning is thought to act via two different mechanisms, the blood and the nervous system. And so they've actually, they've actually did blood transfusions on a rabbit that did ischemic preconditioning and, did, and then pretty much what they did is induce the stroke in the other rabbit um, that didn't do ischemic preconditioning but had the blood transfusion and showed that they, it was actually protective of damage. So literally you get into a situation now where there might be potential blood doping implications that you can actually do with ischemic preconditioning that will actually confer benefit. Now we don't know exactly what the, how much benefit it would confer, but we already have animal level evidence that shows that you can actually get that, which is crazy. Um, but just showing that there is, there's a very strong protective effect that's transmitted via the blood um, that goes to the heart and the brain and uh, all those other organs uh, in particular. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's who knows. But for right now, <laughs> we're in the wild west right now. Right. Well, that, that's, that is very fascinating. And prior to you even saying illegal, I was almost thinking that just, just your comment on the swimmers. You know, think Olympics, what was it, two Olympics ago, Summer Olympics, when they banned all those, those swim, you know, yeah. swimmers because of that. Um, that, yeah, if there's something consistent that's, you know, increasing everyone's times, is it going to be something that's eventually it's like not, you know, not allowed in the performance environment? Yeah, who knows? I mean, because this is something that you can do to yourself. This is not an exogenous substance. This is not, um, you know, I, I guess you can – similarly to, to blood doping and the erythropoietin and, and and that kind of stuff but at least this this has it's just yeah I mean it's, it's gonna be interesting to see kind of how that evolves um, with with this but for right now there's no no verdict on this so if you can if we can if I can find a way to maximize my athletes potential and performance I'm gonna take that especially if it's science-based and it's not illegal. So that's kind of where it is right now in the CrossFit world, which is interesting because the CrossFit world um, is very into, obviously, performance, and, um, and, and a lot is required of the athletes on a daily basis. So being able to provide evidence-based therapies that can augment their performance and potentially enhance their recovery are – extremely extremely you know valued yeah so, is there any research as far as decreasing injury risk at all uh not that i've come across not with bfr okay. um you know uh yeah i don't i don't i, I don't think so just because the way you know bfr I, what there is evidence of in terms of bfr is trying to get people back to function and improving their function. So there is evidence to show that the use of BFR can augment function in geriatric clients in particular, um, being able to uh, improve their six minute walk, their uh, queen step test, and some of the other, and timed up and go, for example. Um, but yeah, in terms of injury risk, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't, I have nothing that I'm aware, made aware of. Though. Yeah, I just didn't know as far as with the uh, muscle hypertrophy and increasing or, you know, speeding up recovery that way, if there's any, anything out there as far as reducing injuries yeah. for those back-to-back -back workouts or not. Yeah. I mean, I will say like, and this is the kind of stuff I get trolled on in social media is if you have somebody that's post-surgical, for example, an ACL, uh, ACL uh, client and, you know, right now we don't have the evidence to suggest that it accelerates ligamentization or uh, the, 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 the production of positive adaptations within the ligament. Um, however, the science, especially with, um, with VEGF and some of the other 
uh, intermediates potentially says that we could. Now, we don't have any evidence to suggest that, so I would never speed up a, uh, an individual's return or a protocol with that. But what I do notice and what I have noticed is an increase in that zero to eight weeks period of time where people are just struggling to ambulate or you know get around. I've seen based on you know using BFR and not using BFR that those individuals might be able to get two additional weeks of ambulation versus uh, comparing it to somebody who's not using BFR. And that actually that actually could be significant in terms of quality of life. But over a six month period of time, the 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 the, the benefits might be a wash, but that's, again, you're looking at it, that, that's a very myopic perspective in that if, if my goal is try to get my client as functional as possible, as quick as possible, mm-hmm. I mean, then B, and BFR can help that, even though we're not accelerating a, you know, return to sport protocol, um, then that's a win, then that's a win. Um, and not to mention, the, 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 the numerous amounts of research, especially with ACL, that shows prolonged quadriceps deficits of even about 20 to 30% side to side, even after a year, um, it, it, and, and how we can potentially augment that. We just don't have the data right now. Um, we have like five studies on ACLs uh, with BFR and a couple more that should be published by the end of the year or, or early next year. But... Um, but that's really like where, where my argument is. It's like, again, everything in rehab, I would say we, we deal with something called regression to the mean, right? Where it's like over time, if I do nothing, the likelihood is, is that that person in the rehab setting is going to go from a seven out of 10 pain to a three or four out of 10 pain in, you know, a set period of time, regardless of whatever intervention I'm doing with them. Statistics, you know, kind of suggest that. Um, there was this great study that was done uh, three years ago on comparing Graston versus uh, thoracic manipulation versus ultrasound and showed that literally all three of them had the same exact, after a year, their whole pain pattern was exactly identical um, in terms of, exact, in terms of what, where, they, where the clients were after a year, which just says a lot. I mean, so our job, my job, at least in the rehab, uh, in the rehab sector, because this is different than the performance sector. But in the mm-hmm. rehab sector, my job is to utilize BFR um, to help augment their function and get them back to what they want to do, you know, and have them experience the joy of pain-free movement, which is kind of my slogan, which is where BFR fits in. It's just an evidence-based therapy that helps, uh, that, uh, that's an active evidence-based therapy, not a passive one, that helps individuals experience the joy of pain-free movement and get them moving a little bit sooner. Um, because biomechanics in terms of the rehab setting aren't really a super priority for me. Um, they're more of a priority for the performance setting uh, and force transmission and yada, yada. So then BFR kind of takes on a different realm there. And that's more augmenting cardiovascular function and, uh, and specifically with program. But yeah. And in the rehab setting, getting them back to that functional you know, some sort of functional point faster is obviously always our goal. And, you know, the, the most efficient way we can do that is, you know, is definitely something that we should be utilizing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't, I, I don't see how there's a negative if I can also facilitate additional bone growth, um, bone growth, uh, improve tendon quality. And ultimately, you know, there's even evidence to suggest that um, that BFR, and I've seen this clinically, but actually just got published um, last year. Um, whereas just the, the the ability to contract with uh, under ischemic conditions actually provides pain relief. So I have I use typically in the rehab setting, like we know that heavy lifting is going to confer the big the largest benefits to the cardiovascular system, the musculoskeletal system, and he, and, and really honestly, even like mental. Being able to do more is always going to be better um, than doing less, even if you're doing BFR. Um, at least those are my beliefs. And we know that that BFR is not going to be a be-all, end-all because I I don't think you know. And there's a paper that was actually published in Japan and Korea last, a little bit a little bit ago that I can't read, which is which was showing potentially positive tendon 
benefits with 20 to 30 percent of the one rep max but but typically and i'm waiting for a translator so if, if anyone listening here that can, that can read korean that would be great um but but there is evidence to suggest in english at least that um that bfr alone is not going to induce tendon adaptation it's not going to increase the tendon stiffness it's not going to change any of the morphology associated with the tendon so what we need to do is load heavy because that's the way the tendon actually um ad adapts and so bfr then acts as a bridge to heavy lifting so if I, if I have somebody with lateral elbow pain so i'm doing case study reports right now on my instagram so i'm, I'm kind of thinking about some of this stuff so i can so i can regurgitate some of the things that I do in, in clinic with people that don't understand where BFR could fit in the plan of care. If I have somebody with elbow pain, lateral elbow pain that's coming from the tendon, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to have them do low load BFR exercises in the bent elbow position to minimize stress on the tendon. And then I want to ha and then get that pain relief that, that that's, that's going to be at least 45 minutes. Um, anybody interested, they can look up, uh, I think it's a Greek guy, Vasielos. Uh, 2017 was the study they did on anterior knee pain and showed analgesia that way. But we've seen this across the board, um, ankle, knee, even hip um, and elbow, obviously, um, providing pain relief. And then I just load them heavy. So you BFR first and then load them heavy. Or when they're in their later stages of rehab, I have them do heavy lifting first. And then maybe I'll do some upper bike ergometry for cardiovascular exercise with BFR. Or I might do a wrist extension burnout to really just make sure that I'm getting as much stimulation of those uh, muscle fibers as possible before uh, they leave. So again, it just really depends on knowing. And that's why it's important to understand where you can apply BFR and what the physiology is that is underpinning exactly what benefits you're going to be seeing with BFR. And then you can really plug and play. I mean, it's just like, it's nice to be able to be like, all right, all right. We can do this, do this, and eh, BFR might not be appropriate. People ask me, or at least the orthopedic surgeon asked me, he goes, goes, Nick, so how many people in your caseload are doing BFR? And I said, about 40%. He's like, really? And I go, yeah, because the other 60% don't need it. Like they can lift heavy. We can do, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't need BFR per se. And so it's really just being able to apply the appropriate, you know, the appropriate stimulus when you need to mm -hmm. and then you can obviously optimize their their rehab or performance however you you choose cool so. awesome hey we covered a lot of stuff today any kind of final thoughts as far as bfr goes that you want to make sure we get out yeah i think i think that um that really the the one top one we didn't really talk about like wrapping your, your arm in voodoo straps or wrapping your knee, you know, that to me is, is, is not optimal. Um, yes, you'll probably experience some benefit because hypoxia or lack of oxygen is a very powerful stimulus, but really I don't necessarily think it's the safest way to go about it. And with the affordable technology that smart tools has now developed uh, because, you know, Mario and myself came on board and we wanted to make sure that, that, that their generation two cuffs, which are out, actually, you know, do what they should do. So now it's really an evidence-based affordable cuff because the benefit of BFR, and this is what I'll leave everyone with, is that you're trying to reduce the volume workload. So the amount of reps times sets times volume that you need to do in order to elicit a training effect. So there's this sweet spot in the middle, and that's where the 50 to 80% comes in of pressure. And you need to be able to determine what that is in order to be able to get that get to that sweet spot. So doing something like wrapping or with a voodoo band or a knee strap might not necessarily be optimal to be able to get the benefits of BFR with resistance training. Perfect. If someone wants to learn more about this or reach out to you, how uh, what's the best method to contact you? Yeah, they can they can uh, check out uh, the bfrpros.com. Um, that it's going to have a lot of uh, stuff with programming. We're going to be creating a lot of content uh, regarding BFR. They can check out the Instagram as well. Um, we're launching that up. We have launched it. We're, we're really trying to do more on that front. And then obviously my own Instagram account, the human performance mechanic, I pretty much post on BFR or related BFR content almost every day, if not every day, I'm trying to synthesize some research so people can understand where um, 
where BFR can fit in whatever um, populations that they're working with. So, Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time today. I greatly appreciate you hopping on here and talking with me. Thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. All right. All good information. So really appreciate it. Thank you. You are quite welcome. And I think in, I think this one's about two weeks out from dropping. So. Okay, cool. But I'll let you know. Awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Right. Have a good one. Thanks. You too. Bye. Right, bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. Show notes can be found at highlyfunctional.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you would go on to iTunes and give me a five-star rating and review, as well as share this on social media with all your friends and followers. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.